Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 163 of Yoga Land. Today, my guest is Lara Bonusis. Lara is a career yoga teacher. She's been teaching in the New York City area since the 1990s. She's also a yoga therapist and has been teaching in the healthcare space for a long time. So she was the first full-time yoga teacher at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and she developed their in-hospital and outpatient wellness offerings. Lara is currently on the PhD track at Columbia University studying applied physiology, and her focus is on exploring the efficacy and mechanisms of exercise and yoga on the survivorship of cancer. So I was really excited to pick her brain and, and learn about what is happening right now as yoga continues to intersect more with Western medicine and gain more acceptance. And it is complicated. One of the things that we talked about before I hit record was the very real challenge of trying to define yoga in a scientific setting. So one example that she she shared with me is that the World Health Organization is very clearly defining yoga as a form of exercise. And in a sense, that makes sense because there's definitely energy expenditure when you do asana. But obviously, that's not the whole picture of what makes yoga effective and how it works. So on the other side of things, the National Institute of Health is defining it more as an embodied practice like Qigong or Tai Chi, and they are taking into account the mind-body aspects. So I want to say up front that what I really like about Lara and respect about her is that she doesn't offer any quick answers or quick fixes or any bottom line, this is, this is how it needs to be done. She's a critical thinker, and I think we need more critical thinkers in this field of yoga as it continues to develop and become more a part of our healthcare system. She's really grappling with trying to take this practice that is art and science and spirituality and integrate it into our healthcare system in a way that makes sense for patients, for care providers, and for yoga teachers. And she also has some sage advice at the end of the segment about just some things to think about if you are a yoga teacher who is interested in teaching in the healthcare space. So I will leave it at that, except to say that if you have any additional questions for Lara, send them to me at support at Jason Yoga, and there's a possibility we could do another episode together. Enjoy the interview. So I know that you have been teaching yoga for 23 years and you were, you know, the first full-time yoga instructor at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. You left there a few years ago and now you are getting your PhD. Can you talk about that in applied physiology? Yes. So I am at the stage where I finished all of my coursework in the applied physiology department. It's of the biobehavioral sciences at Columbia University. And what really drove me to go back to school was because of the research that I was involved in at Memorials and Kettering. And I wanted to understand a bit more about the mechanisms of the effects of physical activity on states of disease, such as cancer, as well as, I think, grow my knowledge of research methods so that I could be more literate when I look at research and mm-hmm. understand what we're doing with yoga in, you know, and research. And also because my position at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I was brought in in April 2009 
the reason why I was brought in was because there was some growth in in the research that was being done with yoga. And it was then because of the quality of the research that was being done, as well as some of the more robustness in terms of their methods, that then it, it really, it's, it's really important for the, the, the field of yoga that it then made us more evidence-based and that we could be recognized by the healthcare system. One of the big movements forward is, you know, whether or not yoga is both feasible or effective for different populations. And the research is showing that it is, you know, advantageous for healthcare practitioners to align with people who are providing services such as yoga, exercise, tai chi within their communities in order to keep the the population healthier. Uh, Yoga is a lifestyle so with that, we have to think about that yoga is both a physical activity, but also has all these other components that people are participating in and that the provider then can see that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for yoga to advocate for wellness within, you know, people with heart disease or diabetes or cancer. And some of the greatest evidence that we have in terms of volume is in looking at the benefits of yoga for lessening or mitigating the effects of some of the side effects of treatment. Mm. I think you're piloting a study right now, right? What are you currently working on? Yeah, there's so many projects going on right now. In terms of like next direction, so my academic work has been really broad and I've been fortunate in that my program at Columbia in the bio behavioral sciences, where we're looking at both, you know, the biology, which is focused on physiology, but then also looking at behavior. And that my professors have been able to advocate for doing classes in health policy, health psychology. I've also taken a class in IO psychology, which is an industrial and organizational psychology. So looking at how we could use wellness within the workplace settings, because I worked for a number of years at corporations in providing yoga classes, but also like wellness programs of how people could de-stress or, you know, working on panels of, you know, advocating for how could you put in movement breaks during your day and break up some of your sedentary behavior or use a wearable technology such as like a Fitbit or Apple Watch as a motivator and also as a way of, of keeping track of how active you are. I've been in those spaces for a long time in New York City, and then also some of the programs that I've been a part of in Japan have also been looking at, like, what are the needs of the population there? They have a lot of challenges in terms of being overworked and not sleeping enough. And so looking at, well, how does yoga help with some of those health issues, with public health issues? Do you feel like having rigorous studies done on yoga will help yoga and clinical settings, both in terms of simply having this body of evidence, but then also in terms of helping the, let's say, medical oncologists or radiologists or understand the benefits. In other words, I feel like it's very common these days for Western health practitioners to say like, oh, try yoga. But Mm -hmm. there's never, (laughs) there doesn't seem to be from them an understanding of why beyond just like, it'll make you feel better. There's a lot that I want to say in regards to this question. I think to, to take a step back and to talk about how yoga became 
became of, of interest to researchers. One of the reasons why is because of prevalence of use, that there were enough patients reporting good effects mm. and the provider then asking, you know, what are you doing? And, and I think out of curiosity, like, why are you doing better than my other patients? Like, what are you doing differently? And I also, working at Memorial Sun Kettering with as many patients as I did, I also saw a distinct difference between the patients that I would see only once or, or a couple times versus those who are very regular with coming to practice or to class or kept up on it on their own. And I think that in the observation and, and all this sort of reporting, which is usually referred to as epidemiological uh, mm-hmm. data, which, you know, we have some very important studies that came out, you know, 2004, 2006, where we were, the questions were asked about, you know, are you eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day? Are you physically active and to what extent that then we see that there's a reduction in certain diseases with those who are more physically active. Right. as well as being a healthier lifestyle. And, you know, when we think about like the biomedical model of versus the biopsychosocial model where, you know, what affords that person then to be able to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, we do have to think of these health behaviors in context. This might be someone who can afford to do that or to take a walk. If they're not working three jobs or taking care of a child. Right. There's a lot of confounding factors. So, you know, with that epidemiological data, we can't always look at causation. Now, taking a step back and also thinking about, you know, well, what are some of the goals of healthcare? You know, we, we want people to have a longer health span in comparison to the term lifespan of how to keep, you know, the population healthier and functioning and contributing to society economically and otherwise for as long as possible and to lessen disability and maximize their contributions. Mm-hmm. So then you know, how medical providers then have to make recommendations is, you know, that they might say to someone, this is anecdotal, this is something that I'm just observing with patients, this seems to help people, versus, you know, we actually have some emerging research on this, and we have more confidence in how it's being measured, what's being measured. And, you know, if you want to participate in something that will, you know, provide this outcome or benefit, then consider this as an option. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Is there any study that you've worked on so far that you feel just great about, like in terms of giving that evidence and it really reflecting what you believe represents the efficacy of yoga? There's a research pyramid in terms of looking at the strengths of different kinds of studies. So we have at the bottom of the pyramid, expert opinion or observation. And I think that I'd like to communicate to other yoga teachers that your observations are important. I think that yoga teachers as a general profession are very good at visual assessments Mm -hmm. of being able to sort of observe, maybe even change over time in some of the people that they work with. I'm really fortunate that I have many students that I've worked with for 15 years or more. I've worked with, you know, so many interesting groups in in New York City as well as, you know, abroad and seeing what's helping them and what's not. And so when we look at the research pyramid, and maybe we can include this in the notes, is then to know that up the chain in terms of evaluating what are the strengths of different kinds of studies, you know, then looking at, you know, what are 
you know, more uh, in terms of looking at, you know, patterns and populations. And then you have at the higher end of your pyramid, our randomized control trials, and then our meta-analysis of really looking at what those randomized control trials do, where there's much more rigor and distillation, if you will, of what we're actually measuring and whether or not we can control for some of those other types of effects mm-hmm. that we not be able to capture. And so with that, we are at the stage in research right now where we're looking a lot at feasibility still, you know, is this something that the population is interested in? And then in some of our more rigorous type of research that would be laboratory based, that is non-human subject, then we we have more of of an ability to be able to say efficacy. But with yoga, I mean, how do you get, how do you that. So we have to look to some of the exercise science research, as well as some of the interesting fascia research that has come out of certain laboratories as well, as well as stress reductive research, looking at like environmental uh, affordances that we could then compare, I think, some of the maybe underlying like efficacy mechanisms that are occurring within, you know, animal species in, in response to you know, stressful environments versus non-stressful environments. Mm, yeah. Okay. When you say feasibility, do you mean feasibility of being able to study it in in that setting, or do you mean? Yeah, that's a good question because a lot of these terms, like research, has like such a set vocabulary, and it's very specific about how we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And feasibility is a very specific term that we use in research, and it's basically saying are asking the question, is this possible? What a type of setting or environment, is this a population that can possibly do this? Hmm. We have, you know, we haven't even answered all those questions looking at lots of different types of populations. So some of the early programs that I got to be part of at, at Memorial Sun Kettering was a feasibility study where we were looking at providing basically a pranayama intervention for patients with COPD, which is a challenge to their breathing, and it's a a permanent condition where they basically struggle to take a single breath. And there's a lot of consequences of having this condition where they might not be as social, they might not be as active. They are challenged by even walking up the stairs and whether or not there could be some benefit and whether or not they were motivated and willing to participate in the research. So in that study, we did publish on it and you know, we had really good outcomes. We had an incredible adherence rate to the protocol. It was not an easy protocol. It was to be done twice a day for, I think, over the course of six weeks. It was, I think it was quite intense. I was sort of thinking, like, would I be able to do something like that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, make a complete, like, you know, dedicated practice and time in my day to follow along to a a, a recording of, of these activities you know, like when your dentist tells you to floss more, it's like, well, you know, are you are you able to be consistent or do you report that you're consistent, you know, versus right. being, you know, those are all the, the sorts of challenges with human subject research is, you know, has to do with our behavior of whether or not we'll actually do what we, you know, what we're told is good for us. Yeah. But it sounds like even if they inflated the self-reporting a little bit, they had good results from that study. Yes. So in terms of we have objective measures that are a bit can be more confident in where, you know, we're actually measuring something observable versus, you know, the self-report, the qualitative reports that a patient might give, which are just as, as valuable and if not more so because like for that, for example, with that study, we had 
people report who participated that said they were more social. They, they were able to walk up the stairs. They noticed they weren't getting as fatigued. They felt better. They had more energy. There were all sorts of, I think, important outcomes in terms of quality of life and, you know, giving us also confidence in that we were providing something that, you know, could be helpful. And then we have, you know, something like the six minute walk test, which is, we call it an instrument, like a validated way of, of being able to understand if there was change over time from a pre-test, post-test intervention, looking at the differences. And then the volume of participants then gives us more of an understanding of whether or not there's, we can have confidence in, in recommending this type of intervention to similar patients. Mm-hmm. One of the things that seems helpful, I don't know if that's the right word, about that study is that it was just so specifically focused on pranayama. So I guess I'm wondering if you have seen studies or been a part of studies that were broader and if that presented more challenges in terms of measuring yoga. Oh boy, yes. (laughs) I don't know how much I should speak to it. I was a part of a study recently where it became actually very uncomfortable to continue to be a part of because I felt like some of the research methodology was not well thought out enough. And they kept changing also some of their outcome measures. It was a broader population and they specifically did not even gather us together to make sure that we were teaching the same thing. So I was part of the intervention group for a yoga study where we were offering chair or general personalized yoga to one or two participants. And these were participants that were typically lower socioeconomic in nature. A lot of them, the patients that I got to work with were immigrants. And in order to be included in the study, they had to have a certain level of chronic pain. But the challenges there, you know, they're looking at whether or not this is a a study, whether or not their intervention, like yoga could be available in sort of like community healthcare settings. And so their research question was not so much about the yoga per se, but more about the facilitation of a yoga and also another intervention in medical settings. So, you know, there I felt like we could have done better in terms of being more, I think, consistent with what we were offering and also being able to report upon what we were offering in terms of the yoga. So there are times where you know, being inside of these studies and also now with the education that I've got, one of my professors, when I was talking to her about it, she was like, oh, no, we've, we've ruined you for life. <laughs> and then, you know, I will forever now look at research with a very critical eye and also in terms of how it's being administered and done. There are weaknesses. There is the responsibility and a lot of authors on research are reporting this more and more where there's what we call a confession paragraph at the end and where they are saying, this is where we could have done better, or this is where if we had had only more budget, we could have done it this way. Or in hindsight, we learned from this and this is where we, we weren't effective. This is maybe where the next researcher that comes along should consider our intervention, but also tweak it in this way. And One of the things that I think is really exciting about being in research and in science is that it is about pushing forward new information. And so typically, studies that are reported upon and what you read in in good peer-reviewed literature is the newest information. And it's 
there are overlaps and that's important because we need to be able to sort of see if it's generalizable or, you know, add to like if it's additive to previous studies, but maybe done with a slight difference in terms of how they're doing it or how they're asking and evaluating in their mechanisms of, of how they're measuring the research but it's always moving the field forward. It's about contributing to the next understanding of the field. And so that's where, like, when we look at, like, where the field is at, we want some of these questions answered as yoga providers, right? We want to be able to say to people that that yoga is completely safe, that yoga is, you know, beneficial for all, that it will work for, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you hear a lot of the sort of common discussions of, I don't know, sometimes misstating some of the benefits where we might not be at that point yet in terms of where we're able to conclusively or even confidently say that with the research. Right. So potentially overstating the benefits, which in the long run will be to yoga's deficit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 I call it yo yo science. Like we have bro science in (laughs) the in the PT world, I call it yo science. And we have a lot of yo science. And that's also what has driven me to continue, you know, moving forward in terms of my academic career and, and wanting to, um, you know, go through a really rigorous program and also to kind of marinate in it for a longer time is because, you know, I'd like to help clean up some of the misunderstandings Hmm. that are occurring in the reporting on research. And we see this all the time. And even to the point where, you know, maybe it's made me unpopular with certain individuals, because I'll call out, you know, something that might not be the correct way of, of reporting on it, or of attributing a certain benefit to and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get better at that in terms of being more of a team player in that regards, because I do care about this field, and I want us to do well for our population. Yeah, there is a lot of yo science, I guess it's interesting to me, when you said, you know, the bottom of the pyramid is observation, which I think is obviously that makes total sense. At the same time, there's something that I notice and in the yoga community, which is people getting excited about someone who, let's say, is doing research. Like it's not funded research, right? They're just like, let's say, interested in fascia or so they write a blog post or they write an article and then that's looked at as research. Mm. That kind of drives me bonkers because I think it's I think it's disingenuous <laughs> and I think it's potentially harmful. So I guess I'm wondering from your perspective like you know there is progress being made in the way that we look at the body and the way that we understand the role of fascia and and how it's enervated and all of these wonderful things. But how do we become Absolutely. Well, here we're, we're at a stage in, in our modern information age where there's a couple things happening, and I, and I have theories on this. So on the misreporting of information, while potentially well-intended, we are at a point in our history where we have more than enough information. Now it's the problem of, you know, of, of sorting through it all and yeah. being able to understand like, what's good. And that does take a certain level of education. Unfortunately, that it's it's taken me a long time, even in terms of my classes at Columbia, where all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. Like I get under, I understand like what to look for, how to evaluate it, how to read it, and then also to where to poke holes in it, and to be able to see like where the weaknesses are, and to be able to understand 
you know, good research versus bad research, even, you know, even stuff that's published. Also the journals that certain studies get published in because they weren't strong enough or even maybe even well done enough to be in other journals, you know, to be able to kind of like shift and understand that there's different types of journals, ones, you know, like ones that are more for clinical practice versus research. So there's a lot of, I'd say like nuances in the interpretation and in research literacy. And the only way to do that is to just continue to study and to be well educated in the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Second to that, I have a second theory if I can add in. That is that I think the field of yoga, I'm, I'm part of the generation that is, you know, really, I'd say moving after, you know, being given information directly from a teacher. I was one of the first graduating classes at Kripalu after Amrit Desai was asked to leave. So that was in 1996. And then I was part of the, I, you know, I assisted Bikram and then look at that. And then, yeah, yeah. Um, but I wasn't part of that. Luckily, I, you know, I have a pretty, I'm like a cat where I, you know, kind of get repulsed by certain behavior. And so I kind of like move away, but I was, you know, I was also in the Anasara community for many years. And so I think that that point, actually, for me personally, I remember thinking, well, thank goodness I've got science now hmm. because now I have a place to continue to study and to look at what we're doing and to be able to understand it. And not only that, science is a conversation that's done by many and that is also, you know, there's a there's certain kind of like peer, peer review, like a checking process where we look in and keep each other in check. It's, it's a different model. The pitfall for our industry, though, is that no one can particularly own it, but they can interpret it and then, you know, then commodify it from that. And we do see that happening more and more in terms of science being a very appealing outlook in terms of how yoga teachers are looking for information. I think on the flip side, they might look for the second, you know, with with science growing in terms of popularity, we're also going to see traditional methods, I think, also becoming more appealing of looking and studying in some some of these practices that are maybe more ancient and you know won't be able to be researched and maybe more exclusive in that way. It is pretty fascinating. I mean, it's funny like I asked you that question about how do you discern between you know just trusting someone who's researching and whether you know even if it's not been rigorously studied and really, like we've all, those of us in, in this, I'm in the same generation as you, we all just simply trusted the words that came out of the mouths of our teachers who are just human beings <laughs> because they hung it on tradition, right? And now that's being really examined much more closely by people, not not everybody, but by a lot of people in the community and whether or not they we're just winging it and making it up as they went along and we're sort of snake oil salesmen or whether or not they were incredibly gifted in transmission of the, you know, of that they were taught from their teachers. But it is, it is interesting to think about how quickly things have changed by some of the scandals and, and like the, the upheavals within certain traditions. One thing I wanted to ask you is, I think I understand what you what you meant when you said it has the possibility of being commodified. Do you mean the science around yoga has the potential of being commodified and then sort of branded or uh, referring to yoga itself? Well, I guess what I'm saying is like what what's out there and 
you know, I have a couple programs that I've offered and I've done so exclusively primarily in Japan because they require me to brand it. And mm. I went over there and I've been teaching those programs since 2009. And I, I do have a very specific approach and it is identifiable and brands, I think help us I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, there's this whole like thing about, you know, you should brand yourself at work and <laughs> everything has a brand and it's almost mm-hmm. to the extent where I'm kind of like annoyed. It's just iced coffee you know, for crying out loud. <laughs> but, you know, some of the people who are in marketing could probably like advocate for, you know, it helps us to rely upon and, and know what we are getting. Now, I do see that there's kind of misuse of like using the science as a way of creating the brand. But on the other hand, you know, it is in the you know, power of interpretation. And it's also like in in the way that science is done in Japan, where there is less public funding, and the majority of the scientific research is actually done housed within more of proprietary environments, such as a company or pharmaceutical company like we have here, where there is science that's being done in those settings, but then it's not like publicly available. So then it's, you know, it's something that's available to, you know, for the benefit of that company or brand. Luckily, here in the United States, we do have a lot of funded science that's done through our university and through our public entities that are funding it, such as like the NIH. And so then that makes it more widely available and is not housed under these for-profit companies. And so I do think that there is a benefit in that for us on a level of the population health. And so you know, just looking at those structures and and seeing the differences also in in how the attitudes and use of science in those different countries, you know, the United States versus Japan, for example, you know, that there's pluses and minuses to that too. I mean, let's see, thinking about commodification, you know, we do have a lot of brands of yoga and I think, you know, I've always been repulsed by it on a personal level but at the same time, it helps to identify, you know, saying that I was Kripala trained and then Anusara trained. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It right. just some of the, I don't know, some of the noise. And it does help us identify what's being done where. And one of the maybe advantages, but also risks that we have moving forward into putting yoga into healthcare settings is do we make it prescriptive? And there is at the more international level, you know, like with the World Health Organization and other entities, that there is a, an interest in making it more prescriptive. At least that's what I've heard. And, you know, that part of the beauty of what we've done and what I've been able to do in the healthcare settings that I've been in is that I fit within the cracks of where I could support the physical therapy goals, but do it from a yoga perspective or point of view or through you know, giving them something even in addition to what they're given in those prescriptions, because that's more rigorous and there's a lot more oversight to how those are being delivered. And so there's both bonuses to being, you know, outside of the box for us as yoga practitioners. And then there's also like, you know, ways that maybe it could help us to be more uh, defined in what we're providing. Mm. So one of the questions I had, which I mean, it kind of sounds like you're starting to answer it is obviously you believe that there are benefits to studying yoga scientifically or you wouldn't have embarked on the degree that you've embarked on. And But I am also just wondering 
where do you see science perhaps hindering yoga as a discipline? I think there's been mixed feelings from the community on it. I think it's important to hear a lot of the different voices of, you know, people who are who are offering yoga um, within their communities and, and to help them, I think, have an understanding of how science could be, like having some scientific knowledge would be helpful to them. But without it, I think, overshadowing some of their own I don't know, personal feelings or beliefs around what they're doing. For me, studying physiology has changed my my way of teaching. I mean, now everything I'm doing in my classes, I can back it up with a study. Hmm. So I can tell you, you know, about like even regions of the brain that are active during different positions and postures. And I haven't made this really publicly known other than that there's been a lot of really cool feedback I've gotten from some of the students that take like my public group classes, for example, where they're like, I just feel so much better. Hmm. <laughs> That's what they notice. But, you know, I might be putting it, you know, even like in terms of tempo, uh, you know, thinking about acute responses versus long-term responses for individuals, thinking about the individual stage of life that they're at, also understanding, you know, some of the physiological challenges and differences between working with someone who's 20 years old versus someone who's 40 versus someone who's 65 who might have dementia. And so being able to then provide yoga better Mm -hmm. for people that I'm working with and to have confidence in what I'm doing and to know that what I'm providing is of of benefit to them. I think in terms of the way that yoga teachers should consider themselves is as a health advocate within their communities. I also am able to dialogue, I think, with a a better concrete language um, to medical providers. And part of that's also because of, you know, the exercise physiology background that I've got. And then I've also got this great certification that I did years ago when I was working at the hospital of ergonomic assessment specialists. And I really, I use that one a lot in terms of thinking about safe joint angles, repetitive patterns. I think about my classes in terms of the fit principle of frequency, intensity, type, and time. I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, how many times have we loaded the wrists in this group? And what are the beneficial effects as well as what are some of the risks? And knowing what those are has helped me. I'm also thinking about blood flow responses uh, during physical activity, thinking about like when I refer out. And this is a really big thing, I think, for the yoga community is to know when yoga won't be effective. You know, I have someone right now that I'm working with who's got Alzheimer's and I'm working with another yoga teacher and we're kind of like, she's, I'm the main yoga teacher, but then she fills in for me and how we've been reporting upon her responses to what we're doing and also kind of being a, being able to be like just part of the team that's overseeing her care. And last week I was talking to one of her nurses about how she's responding and how I felt really for one of the first times in my career that I couldn't really push her anymore Mm. in terms of um, what's occurring in terms of her She's having some uh, blood pressure challenges. And so thinking about what we're doing and how I really need to taper it down because of how she's responding to it. And I had that also a little bit at the hospital, but I had access to their patient chart so I could see the blood, recent blood count results. And so I could respond, I think, with more dexterity in terms of what I was providing. But with this, I'm, you know, I, I don't have that to go off of. So then being keen in my visual 
and also my the questions that I'm able to ask her because meanwhile she's got short-term memory loss so I can't even ask her how the other side felt but I can ask her in real time how she's responding now and what Mm -hmm. she's and being able to like and and knowing even the different types of memory um, you know from you know my neuroscience classes has helped me in terms of being able to ask those questions that are different than what like you know what the nurse provider will be asking and and then also how to help facilitate activity which is so important for that that population and for her individually but also to know at what point are we are we pushing too far and you know that then we need to you know reassess do you find that when you're designing a study or the studies that you've looked at that trying to define yoga consistently is a challenge absolutely we need to be able to describe and say what we're doing and so, you know, while there's been a lot of, let's say, pushback from the yoga community of calling what we're doing a form of exercise, and part of that, I think, you know, there's good reasons for that, because it's more than that. It's much more than that. We need to also be able to have a framework that, you know, like the fit principle, which is what exercise has, that then can describe what they did. You know, they did five reps with, you know, this percentage of the person's one rep max and progressed it over this amount of time. And these are the responses that the person had and yada, yada, yada. In yoga, we don't have that. We do have an instrument that is called the FEQ and it was funded by the NIH a couple of years ago. I really enjoy this instrument, although it's not something that's like readily used for the regular population or even, even you know, there's a lot of you know, you have to submit for like a video analysis of your intervention in order to then be analyzed by the EPIQ. It breaks it down into different domains of what occurred within that setting. And it's, I think, useful in group settings. Yeah, but we need to be able to describe what we're doing and be able to do that better and clearer and faster with each other. And, you know, this is where, you know, I, I've heard a lot of long winded discussions happen between yoga teachers of like, well, a down dog is not just a down dog. If mm-hmm. you're doing this engagement, yada, yada. and yes, there's so much nuance and difference to how we do what we do. Right. So I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where we completely agree, but we need to have, I think, a more concrete framework for communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is really so tricky because it, it's part art and part science. And it's part, like, how can you quantify someone's internal experience? I guess you can quantify their internal state in a lot of ways, just by some of the measuring measurement tools that we have. But I would imagine that that's a challenging part of being in this in the field that you're in. I've had the same questions, and it's led me down to take a couple classes in measurement and in psychometrics where looking at the evaluation tools and even the history of the evaluation tools that we're using in yoga research. So a lot of them developed in response to physical therapy and, and military training within the time frame around World War II, as well as some of our, our psychometric evaluation tools was also looking at readiness to serve and, and whether or not that person was you know, fit for, to be in the military and in what position. So a lot of those instruments were developed. There was a huge kind of growth in that in that area during that time period. And we are now like, you know, following in those footsteps. And so a lot of the instruments that we're using, you know, come from that time in our history. And so knowing that this is the the lens that we're looking through 
then we need to be able to use those tools, I think, with real skill. Yeah, I'm sure it's just, yeah, a work in progress. Absolutely. The last time we spoke, you said something so interesting that has clearly stood out to me, even though we spoke a while ago. You said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, yoga research is sort of in the same stage that psychology research was decades and decades ago, 1930s or the 1940s. Can you unpack that a little bit, what you mean by that? Well, yeah, I think that we, you know, this is also something that I'm constantly thinking about in the way that the field is emerging in some of the groups that I've been a part of both at the IOYT. I've marginally been involved a little bit with the Yoga Alliance, but that was a while ago. And now with a group called the Global Consortium of Yoga Therapy, which is a a global group of yoga providers and advocates, I guess I would qualify us as. But yeah, thinking about where there are certain tensions, certain, I think, hopes and directions and movements forward, either on the political or financial motives or on that end of the spectrum, or even in terms of population health, which is where my interest lies. And thinking about, you know, it's not perfect, like how we want to move forward with, you know, let's say standardizing what are some of the basic understandings that a yoga teacher should have when working with cancer survivors and patients and how there'll be some disagreements. And we're not even at the place where we even have guidelines Mm -hmm. where we guidelines in exercise oncology, exercise science, or we have guidelines in health psychology in terms of working with that population. At least I think they do. I don't actually know that, but I know that we do in the exercise oncology realm through the American College of Sports Medicine. They have guidelines that they published in 2009, 2010, and they have, they're updating them this year. So we don't have those. And then how can we say that then create a standardization of education? So it's messy, right? Like it's like, but that yet there are patients out there. We have more and more survivors of cancer. And would we want practitioners who know a bit about what their, what their experience has been or the side effects of the, the drugs that they're on? Um, yes. You know, it, recently I came across an article looking at the history of dental reform and how it was back in the, I guess, 1800s where uh, a lot of the people practicing or, or calling themselves dentists of, you know, or worked with teeth that it was not regulated and that there were people that were basically like snake, snake oil salesmen. And, and then when the industry became reformed, that then thank goodness that we can now, you know, go to a dentist and at least have some confidence in what they know and how they're going to treat us. And also that there's some oversight into what they do, mm-hmm. you know, especially for something, you know, as vulnerable as that area of our body. So I am of two minds about this, where coming from, you know, a time where yoga has been um, the Wild West and has been unregulated, and we've trusted these teachers. And, you know, now we have this emerging, you know, layer of evaluation from the lens of science and how it's been looked at. And then, you know, we, we need to know more in order to be able to have to be able to, you know, provide it better. I, I think that there will be some uncomfortable changes ahead in terms of what yoga looks like in the future. I think that there will be some divisions. So in in psychology, for example, there was these like outright wars between the cognitive group and the behaviorist group. And I've only heard about this from my professors, but how they wouldn't even talk to each other at conferences. And I've, I've had similar responses to being in the field of physiology and looking at yoga through this lens. I'm sure. I, 
I've pushed against some people, you know, who are coming at it from a different point of view, where I've also disagreed with, I think they're taking advantage of a vulnerable population Mm. and disseminating false information and not doing the due diligence of working with someone who's got scientific literacy, instead just hiring a bunch of medical providers to then do like a, a paper or something like that, where then they didn't understand like, you know, that they hired the wrong kind of medical provider to actually give them the answers that they wanted. You know, there's a lot of, I think, messiness in, in our field. And, you know, yet there's also a lot of potential. And we have to have confidence in that, you know, going back to like knowing that we are providing something that is helping people be more physically active, that is helping people be in their body, being with states of their mind, that we're doing more good than not. Yeah. And I mean, especially in a clinical setting, it just seems like having more rigor and evidence and just comfort in working with people will make everyone feel better. I'm wondering, you worked for years in a cancer center, and I imagine that that had its own challenges. I'm wondering if there's someone out there listening right now who's a yoga teacher and thinking, oh, I'd love to teach in a clinical setting. I I seem so empowering and exciting to to help people in this way. If you have any advice for people out there. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that makes us appealing is that, that we aren't unionized. And I think that they should be careful about, you know, making sure that it's not just a volunteer position, but that they are seen as a professional person that's moving into that setting. I think that, and I've heard about more and more people being taken advantage of that way. So I think, you know, in general, I think yoga teachers should be paid and being able to bridge and to be helpful. A lot of the time when I was the manager of the exercise and yoga programs at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they, I would get, I mean, so many resumes and the majority of the resumes were of people who had under two years of teaching experience. And I think that they meant well, Mm -hmm. but as any of us who've taught for years, we know that there's a certain time that it really takes to be able to communicate and then see at the same time, be able to speak and then observe, and then also be able to have some of the nuances that might be more helpful for, you know, complicated medical situations. For example, there was one person who during interview process, you know, didn't even know the muscles of the body. And I was like, well, how are you going to read a medical chart? I mean, there's just a certain kind of base knowledge that would be helpful for you to be here. While what you would provide, I'm sure, would be very beautiful and helpful for for that person on, on many levels, but also in terms of being able to to be in a setting where, you you know, the more you know, it, it does help. And so that we do have a lot of then on the flip side, like nurses or you know, people who maybe don't necessarily, they have a certification in yoga, but maybe they're not like actively teaching that are holding those positions. And and I think that, you know, all of us bring a certain amount of value to what we do and how we offer it. It's just, you know, that I think that those who are out there who have a lot more knowledge, I think should be considered as well. Mm-hmm. And those who've, you know, at a certain point in my career, when I was first teaching, I remember thinking, gosh, I'm so glad I'm working with healthy people. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that, it, you know, as my, my level of knowledge grew and I took more trainings and I studied more, I then I began to have more tools, more skills to bring 
into those environments. And then it's, you know, and then now having studied, you know, exercise prescription and having studied physiological effects. So, you know, taking multiple classes and courses on this, it's just, you know, hopefully then, you know, the people who do, who do more education that it, it then shows up in, in their approach and how they offer what they do. What made you choose cancer care as an area of interest or did it sort of choose you? Well, it chose me, but I've been really passionate about it. And so I was, my background is working with neurological conditions. And so I was first hired to work at Memorial with survivors of childhood brain tumors. And also one of the program managers at the time had taken a gentle yoga class that I taught at like a local equinox where the average age of the participant is around 60 or 65. And I have people in there who have MS or who have you know, joint replacements and I knew what to do with them. And some of that was because of the trainings that I've taken both with John Friend, but also Allison West was really helpful in terms of, um, you know, studying that. And, and, and also at the Iyengar Institute with Eric Smalls and her of others that, you know, gave me skills and, and some tools to work with people like that. And so they saw me, this person followed me for a little bit and, and secretly took my class like a secret, secret shopper and, and then approached me and said, you know, you have a certain kind of, um, I think she said, like, I don't think she said it this way, but bossiness, no, forcefulness, um, <laughs> advocacy for not letting people off the hook hmm. from what would be good for them in this class. And that, that I would say is probably what I do do well. I'm also very, I think, I have super, super sensitive observation skills. And some of that comes from studying neuroscience, uh, where you're looking at some of those really very small movements of the face or, you know, dilation of the eyes or, you know, adjustments to the breath. And so I think a lot of people actually already have those skills that are practiced. They just don't know that they're, they're using that. They might call it intuition or something like that. But then to go back to your question, yeah, being brought in to work with um, first, you know, a primarily neurological side effect of, of cancer, then, you know, I really got into studying a lot about cancer. And so at that setting, I read all these studies that um, I would stay until midnight on Friday night and just read. And it made me really excited. I felt like we were on to something. This was back in 2009, and we were. And this is before a, a whole flux of, of very important research came out. And then when I went back to school, I remember having a moment of like, you know, I'm studying all these different kinds of diseases. I'm studying diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, neurological you know, disorders. And I was like, I'm still really passionate about studying about the effects of cancer. Some of that also is that it'll be useful in the future because we will have more survivors. And that's what we can predict from the, the advancement of both treatment, but also of, you know, screenings and so there will be more and more people living, having had cancer in the future, and they will need experts to help them understand mm -hmm. what helps them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, there's just so many different types of cancer. Did you feel like, yeah, I mean, did you feel like it took you years to, to understand just how to help people who had different kinds of cancer? Yes, yeah. it's... Um, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's a reason why it's so specialized in terms of people who are experts in one particular type of signaling um, process or something like that. And there's a subgroup of American College of Sports Medicine that, we, you know, and, the, and the, this group meets once a year at a, 
and we follow each other a lot on Twitter and other, you know, and, and also in what's being published and I'm friends with a number of them. And the group as a whole is following the, the types of cancers that are one more responsive to physical activity, which are more of our solid tumors types. And then also looking at, you know, at what time point are we putting, are we administering interventions you know, for the yoga community, it's been a lot about the, those who work in research and, and yoga. It's looking at, you know, tight timing as well, as well as, you know, side effects and mitigation of side effects. Now, one of the studies that I got to do that was, I think, more, maybe will become like a more important study, which is comparing gentle yoga to vigorous yoga in breast and ovarian cancer survivors. And you know, one is that kind of study comparing two different types of yoga hadn't been done. It had just been like yoga was used. And yeah, so that's a really cool idea. Well, right. It's a really they had, cool idea. They had different effects. And we had, I think, something like nine different laboratories on this where we were looking at a lot of different changes. And we'll be, you know, the, the, we've published, I think, one or two papers on it, but there'll be more publications on what we've observed and, you know, some nice triangulation between like, what was seen in the lab results versus self-report versus, you know, a behavioral result, for example. You know, thinking about like where are some of the, what areas of interest are, are you know, I, I do want to be still a generalist. Um, I've also thought a lot about like behavior and program facilitation. I had a triad role where I was in research consulting the research team on how we design the interventions. And then I also, was a program manager where I was looking at where could we possibly put yoga that would be helpful for everyone in terms of, you know, the caregiver, the nurse practitioner who might be at risk of compassion fatigue versus the, you know, the, the desk worker that we had or the patient or the, you know, the, the survivor. And so looking at all these different opportunities. And so I've enjoyed that as well as being a clinician of, you know, working one-on-one as well as in group settings, both bedside and then in the outpatient, and how to strengthen some of the different recommendations that we make um, for people who are facilitating those types of programs. Yeah. This is a tough question to answer, I think, but I'm just really curious, like, if you were to look 10 years down the line at the work that you're doing, where do you hope the research is? I think in terms of the field in general, I do hope that we get more definitions to describe what we're doing and that there is some naming of the different camps or philosophical points of view or even biases and that we start recognizing that we have differences within the community and to be able to then kind of run with that a little bit more like those who are much more interested in sort of the physical aspects of yoga versus those who are more interested in like the you know the way that it's being used in this way or you know however that kind of formulates because I feel like right now that there's just you know one the blanket label of yoga or even like the blanket label of yoga therapy at least there's that difference that's starting to sort itself out mm-hmm. it's not perfect it's not clear for everyone we're starting to get better about understanding what, what we mean by those terms, even those of us who call ourselves yoga therapists as in, in differentiating it between yoga. 
you know, being able to describe more clearly what we're doing when we're providing yoga. I think also, I think there'll be more comparative studies of looking at the difference between different types of programs. Some of that we might be collecting from maybe larger entities. And I think that that type of research is being done in-house at places like Core Power Yoga or at Equinox, you know, and I think that maybe to be more descriptive in, in what we're what we're doing in those spaces. And that'll also help us with understanding like some of the adverse effects of it because we have like the highest incidence of injury of, of acute injury from hot yoga from that style in terms of emergency room visits, but like the longer sort of behavioral programs that we offer, you know, the, those who are doing the, you know, hot power core one or versus the, those who take the gentle yoga, like what are the different effects you know, even like body composition. Yeah. Was interesting. You know, I, I mean, I observe it in those, in those environments, you know, and, yeah. and some might be because they might have a comorbidity, like, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, that then, or, or, you know, a certain level of stress that then, you know, sets their physiology in a way that, you know, is different than a, another individual. So it's really hard to compare, but I do think that we'll see some more like distilled patterns observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You you mentioned the study comparing vigorous yoga to gentle yoga, and that level of delineation would just be so helpful because, like, I'm a breast cancer survivor, and every time I go in, they say, "Do you do your 150 minutes of cardio a week?" And mm-hmm. I say, "Yes, I do," and I don't include my yoga in that because I don't mm-hmm. know if it counts. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It hasn't been studied. Everything, you know, other forms of cardiovascular exercise have in, in mm-hmm. terms of what they're referring to specifically. Uh, yes. But yoga doesn't fall into that category. So, no. yes, more specificity would just be as exciting and, and helpful. And thanks for talking to me and thanks for the, the work that you do. I love that you are doing your academic work and that you're still teaching publicly. I think that's really cool that you're you're still in the field as a yoga teacher. It hasn't been easy. It was a recommendation of a student who had been doing a master's degree in, in the department and had recommended that I have some place to output uh-huh. while you know, going through the program. But I think I've taken that to too much of the extreme. <laughs> and I made it more of a necessity. But to remain, you know, in, in, in the field. But yes, it has been it's it's made the road longer. But it has given me some way of like grounding it in the next direction of where I see things going. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, you're still relating to where the general public is right now with with yoga practice, which I think can't be anything but helpful. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and just to make a point on that, the, the recommendation of the 150 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous level of activity. Well, so, so that comes from the research that is showing that it's it, how advantageous it is to have a certain dosage and level of intensity, specifically for certain types of cancers mm-hmm. and, and in the survival of that. So it is a good recommendation to continue to adhere to in addition to doing your yoga. And I think we'll have a, a, a maybe a, a more thorough understanding that yoga, while it, it isn't, it doesn't qualify as cardiovascular in nature in terms of level of intensity that it has other benefits that that are physiological and physical in nature in addition to the spiritual and um, social and psychological i can't imagine post cancer treatment not having a yoga practice that would be really 
it really does help you just get through so much. And like you said, it it does and it does have physical and physiological benefits that are just different from from other forms of exercise that I do. So Yeah, and hopefully we'll understand that more and and also that we will have many different types of yoga available to people. So that, you know, I, I really want to advocate for the people who are, you know, pro-traditional forms of yoga that they keep offering and teaching and making sure that it continues into the next generation, you know, as well as that there is this drive for the more physical athletic type of yoga that, you know, a lot of people are participating in. But I think that, you know, we should have, we should have all these different styles available and, and be given a platform. Mm -hmm. And understand Mm -hmm. what they do and how they do it. Yeah. That's great. Well, thanks so much, Laura. It was just fascinating to talk to you and, I feel like we could have five more conversations and go down lots, meander down lots more paths. So if you ever want to come back, just let me know. Okay. It was such a pleasure. Really fun. Thanks, Laura. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 163. And I will be sure to include a link to the hierarchy of scientific evidence that Lara referred to where observation is at the bottom of the pyramid and randomized controlled studies are at the top. I took a look at that after our conversation. I thought it was really, really interesting. I'd never been introduced to that before. And as always, if you're a regular listener to the podcast and you enjoy it, please go give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Super helpful and it's super good karma for you. All right, until next week, enjoy your practice.